0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Welcome, 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 welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: The Emergencies Act is still subject to an inquiry, and it was ongoing this past week in Ottawa, not public any longer, but ongoing. Well, public, yeah, but not on television public to a certain extent, and uh, the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor, Jody Thomas, testified before a committee of members of Parliament and senators investigating the invoking of the Emergencies Act and spoke about concerns about a second truck convoy being planned to descend on Ottawa next February 17th to 21st, and Ms. Thomas has revealed the federal government is planning to take action. Well, we're going to talk to our guest about this. And our guest is Professor Christian Luprecht, Queen's University and Royal Military College, expert on national and international security. He testified this week at the Emergency Inquiry Roundtables in Ottawa. I also want to ask uh, the professor what options Canada and Canada's police should be considering if there's going to be any follow-up convoy. Professor Luprecht's book is Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, There's a new book coming up, and we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks' time. Christian, thank you very much uh, for coming on the program again today. Why were you invited to testify specifically um, this week in Ottawa?
1: So people thought that the testimonies were over the week before, after we heard from sort of the key federal officials uh, in this. Uh, but the commission had, and I think wisely, planned for a series of expert roundtables to enlighten some of the more specific conversations uh, that were had with officials. So there were roundtables, in my case, for instance, on the financial dimensions, because if you remember, the Emergencies Act was used in order to assist with uh, uh, freezing some accounts and provide some uh, some accountability on the crowdsourcing um, and I testified on the one with regards to police-government relations, in particular the question of uh, when and under what circumstances uh, can or should government direct the police, what is that relationship, but there were other roundtables for instance on, on basic rights and civil rights and what does it mean to protest because everybody agrees widely in this country that you should have a right to peaceful protest but of course the convoy here raised interesting questions between, well, you know, if you're being unruly and obnoxious, um, is that do you still qualify for a right of peaceful protest? Do you get to bring your truck to a protest? Um, And, of course, some of the asymmetries, for instance, that we saw in the rule of law where um, uh, we had blockages of critical infrastructure in uh, the year earlier uh, where the Emergencies Act was not invoked and yet for uh, a smaller protest that arguably caused less economic disruption, at least in Ottawa, not at our borders. Uh, The government felt it necessary to invoke the act. So uh, what does it mean to have peaceful protest in Canada and what sort of enforcement measures um, are appropriate? Um, So these were sort of, I think, the where the commission is looking more specifically at um, the recommendations that it may be looking to make, specifically recommendations in terms of changes in legislation, but also changes in regulation, um, in policy, um, and perhaps other recommendations in terms of some of the national security uh, structure and infrastructure. But I think the, since it is a federal commission, it will look primarily, I suspect, at federal legislation and federal agencies Um, And provide I think more modest input on the provincial and the local side and we'll leave that uh, To Ontario to sort out in particular since the premier opted uh, Not to testify before the commission on the grounds that this was a federal inquiry and so the fed should go at it
0: Yeah, I hope that we don't lose sight of the significance the ultimate significance of this inquiry Yes, it's to determine whether or not The Emergencies Act was appropriately invoked, but it's also a look at setting the bar for the next time this may be deemed necessary by a federal government. Where is the bar now? Has the language of the Emergencies Act been compromised by opinion? I don't know. Maybe it has. Maybe it hasn't. But wouldn't you agree that that is maybe perhaps the most significant aspect of this, setting the bar for another government?
1: So I think there's several clear, important nuances that I think you allude to here. One is the difference between was it right to invoke the act and was it justified to invoke the act? So was there actually the sufficient legal grounds on which the government could rationalize invoking the act? We can have arguments about you know, what would be right for the government to do. But of course, in a constitutional democracy, we specifically have constraints imposed on government by the Constitution, by the Charter, in the case of the Emergencies Act, by the Emergencies Act itself. And so one of the interesting debates that I think came out of this was, is our understanding of national security sufficiently robust for the 21st century, our, our more realist, traditional understanding of national security that really doesn't cope well with things like political instability, Economic instability and so forth. I think the second important piece is that the challenge when these events happen, and especially when ministers and the agencies testify, everybody will always tell you they did a fantastic job. And this was sort of the best job they could possibly do. Government owns the narrative because they ultimately own all the data and the likes behind it. And so it's very difficult to. Uh, to look inside. And I think what we got here was from the commission was some level of transparency where we can cut through some of the narratives and some of the spin where we heard lots about funding from outside of the country. And then it turns out, well, there really wasn't a whole lot of funding from outside of the country. So where was the disconnect beca- between what we were being told, for instance, by the prime minister um, and what then uh, our security intelligence service uh, ultimately, uh, ultimately told us? And I think the third is really understanding Is our legislation, is our system fit for purpose for the 21st century? And uh, as you know, I've long argued that if our system had performed as intended, we would have never needed to invoke emergency measures to deal with a smaller number of protesters than we get for homecoming at Queen's University in Kingston every fall. Yeah.
0: The reason I brought that up is that there was interpretation of the act, subjective interpretation, brought into the uh, public part of the inquiry. Um, this is after CESIS said, or uh, indicated that it did not, The language of the CESIS Act did not make it incumbent or, or appropriate perhaps to invoke the Emergencies Act. I know the opinion of the director was different as he spoke to the prime minister, but we've been told that. But if language is going to be interpreted, then the language of this particular commission— And the decision that they take on whether or not the Emergencies Act was appropriately or justifiably or legally uh, invoked may be interpreted by another government that comes along and says, well, no, they didn't really mean that. They meant this. So this is why I'm getting what I'm getting at. The language has to be precise. It has to be understood. And it has to be unequivocal.
1: The challenge is whether our understanding of national security in this country was too narrow and that inhibited a comprehensive response. What do I mean by that specifically? This is not just a Canadian discussion. Um, in 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 Europe, the European Court just very recently interpreted national security very very narrowly, and so there's a number of countries that are very concerned about their ability now to respond uh, to potential national security um, matters. The challenge, I think, when you uh, about what, what your definition ultimately uh, ultimately is. Is The federal agencies, so the RCMP, for instance, can enforce pretty much any law that parliament has passed, whereas most provincial forces, local forces enforce only uh, the criminal code and a few other measures. And so when you get federal agencies involved, you have a much, much broader remit to enforce. So the question is, at what point do you get them involved? Because if we have to wait for an emergency every time to get them involved... Clearly, that is the wrong threshold to have a comprehensive approach Mm -hmm. to the sort of convoy that we saw in February. Uh,
0: Before we talk about uh, Ottawa, February 17 to 21, Christian, can you just give me a quick idea, your sense of what's going on in China?
1: Well, I think this is what economists told you at the beginning, also about uh, Canada and other Western countries. That human nature simply doesn't respond well to being highly constrained for extended periods of time, and so you can impose these restrictions uh, for briefer periods of time. But um, fundamentally, in terms of human nature, I mean, folks who live in China are no different than folks who live in Canada, and they don't like being uh, locked up and confined and uh, and uh, and having many of their mobility sort of freedoms that. Already highly constrained, even further constrained, um, and so I think this is uh, this is bound to be seen. And my hypothesis on this is that uh, all along the uh, COVID restrictions in China have always been simply an excuse for the government to essentially further constrain um, mobility uh, by the Chinese out of concern uh, over possible uprisings against Xi Jinping as he's trying to anoint himself as sort of quasi the new emperor uh, before the Party Congress. Yeah, so uh, I think lie. now that that that's done, they're relaxing the restrictions.
0: Okay. Now, under this issue about a potential second convoy in Ottawa, heading for Ottawa, and the dates that were mentioned by Ms. Thomas, uh, February 17th to 21, what is your sense of this? And you you and I talked about, you provided your perspective on what should have happened as far as police engagement was concerned uh, the last time, so February of this year. What is your advice, what's your perspective on this now?
1: Well, first, let's make sure we don't twice become the laughing stock of the international community. First, when we look completely incompetent in uh, responding to the most fundamental challenge to the rule of law that Canada had seen in decades. And then because we looked, we were so incompetent at responding that we felt we had to invoke an emergencies act to deal with a few obnoxious, unruly, but rather tenacious protesters. So I think we did ourselves no favor uh, especially with our key allies in the United States and uh, uh, Australia the United Kingdom in and uh, and Europe it may really made us look uh, uh, not particularly competent and not particularly prepared and uh, given the relatively um, homopathic contribution that Canada has made to regional and international security I think uh, it reinforced the perception that Canada simply doesn't take security seriously um, I think the there's an opportunity here to think back and see it Look at the many uh, failures of of of, uh, agencies. So the the intelligence failures in advising properly in terms of the posture that we need to take to respond uh, the ability to coordinate across local provincial and federal police uh, forces and resources and having the adequate resources in place making sure we have not just a command and control structure that can uh, adequately deal with protests but also have the logistics the intelligence and the planning function so that we can respond uh, dynamically um, and i would hope that this time round rather than the mayor of Ottawa, uh, the prime minister, and the premier taking political potshots at each other and trying all to instrumentalize the situation for their own personal political benefit, uh, that we can actually get collaboration among all three levels of government so that we can have a coherent response and that federal, provincial, and local agencies know that they have appropriate and adequate political direction and political authority with regards to the strategy and the interventions um, uh, that um, are uh, that are expected but are also appropriate in a democracy. And that was certainly one of the things that was discussed this week at the roundtable where everybody said, yes, we don't want politicians to interfere in police operations, uh, but we do need politicians to provide adequate frameworks and adequate uh, strategic direction to law enforcement and intelligence agencies rather than go and hide when things fall apart. Yeah, a novel way of doing politics in Canada. The cynic might say,
0: not that I am. Now, what can you share with us, please, about what would you say was the most substantive piece of um, testimony that you provided at the round table? What what can you share with us?
1: Um, Well, I think there's a general sense that uh, I think by participants that if the system had worked, we wouldn't have needed the Emergencies Act. And there were puzzling measures that current legislation would arguably have been adequate to deal with these measures but that um, the emergencies act required uh, provided sort of an accelerant overall uh, to uh, and provide additional toolkits to enable uh, the agencies but I think there was broadly I would say um, um, among people that I shared uh, that I shared the uh, uh, the roundtables with uh, I think some trepidation um, whether they were lawyers, they were social scientists, uh, they were consultants, or they were practitioners. And we heard in particular from the Toronto response by Chief Raymer and the chief executive of the board in Toronto, Ryan Teschner, uh, the way Toronto was prepared and the way Toronto was able to uh, respond. Now, they did have some heads up here, uh, but I think there's a there's a sense here that... Uh, um, Convoy 2.0, we actually have to look competent, professional, and we can do this, um, and that everybody's a little puzzled about uh, the extent to which we were exchanging business cards basically on top of the heap of the rubble uh, in a national capital, in a G7 country, in the 10th largest economy in the world.
0: This is a disturbing story. So I want you to think about that as you listen. You're going to hear some things that are very disturbing, extremely so. And it's about Russia's war crimes against Ukraine and its people. On September 23rd, a U.N. mandated investigation found that war crimes, including rape, torture, murder, and confinement of children had been committed in Russian-occupied areas of Ukraine. As well, uh, of course, the massive missile attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure, cutting power to millions of Ukraine citizens and their homes, as the bitter cold arrives, the question is, does that qualify as war crimes? There has been a tremendous amount of this going on. Dmitro Koval is an international law expert. He's a member of Truth Hounds, a Ukraine war crimes investigative group. And Mr. Koval joins us from Ukraine. Dimitro, thank you for coming back on the program. You and I spoke maybe four or five months ago. Um, Let's talk about truth hounds. I understand that you're, you're a team of experienced human rights professionals working on documenting war crimes and crimes against humanity in the war context, and not just since February of this year, which is massive, but also since 2014, the then invasion of Ukraine by the Russians, and some of your investigations go back to 2008 and the Russia-Georgia war then. Is there a pattern of Russian human rights abuses and war crimes being carried out?
2: Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting. And uh, yes, indeed, uh, I work with two Hounds, uh, which is uh, the Ukrainian NGO, but uh, which works not only in Ukraine, but also in the um, uh, some other countries of the region, like Azerbaijan, Armenia, Kazakhstan, Georgia as well. Um, Speaking about uh, some patterns in the violations of human rights and uh, uh, breaching of uh, IHL, indeed we can see some um, common, um, let's say, violations or uh, groups of violations uh, that are being committed in the conflict in which Russia is involved. Um, But uh, I would want to speak not only about Georgia and Ukraine comparison here, but also about uh, Chechnya, uh, Syria... Uh, and are the context in which uh, Russian troops fought. Uh, So in all these conflicts, we see that indiscriminate challenge is one of the methods of warfare. Also, terrorizing of civilian population was quite common, both in uh, Chechnya conflict, uh, in uh, Syria conflict, and now in Ukraine. Uh, Similarly, uh, we see that unlawful confinement uh, was being made uh, one of Russian methods of uh, uh, armed conflict of uh, warfare as well. And it was practiced widely uh, in uh, several contexts, not only in Ukrainian one. So, indeed, uh, there are patterns. Indeed, there are similarities between the violations of both human rights law and international human China law. And uh, one of the uh, ways to actually broke this vicious cycle is to um, find appropriate accountability mechanisms that would be able uh, to... Uh, restore justice and to bring some peace for the victims and for those who suffer from their violation.
0: Yeah, I want to talk to you about that in a moment. Now, the, the Russians, the military, they do this with impunity, do they not? They're not concerned, as far as I can get, I understand. They're not concerned about repercussions from even their own military. They just go ahead and they commit these atrocities, and I don't want to just don't you know, make it sound like it's routine, but it seems like it's almost routine for them, based on where they've been and the damages they've left behind. They're not concerned about repercussions from their own military command, are they?
2: Uh, it looks like they are not. And uh, even more so, we see that uh, some of the uh, soldiers, some of the combatants that uh, were uh, occupying Bucha and other Uh, small cities around Kyiv, they received medals of honor or something similar to that uh, from uh, Russian commanders uh, for their service. So not only they were not um, uh, somehow uh, held accountable, but uh, they were even awarded uh, with uh, medals uh, for the actions.
0: What did you see in Bucha?
2: Um, We saw a number of crimes committed uh, in Bucha, most commonly murder, um, also unlawful confinement, uh, torture, uh, rape, uh, and other crimes uh, of sexual nature. Um, So those were the, the most typical, probably.
0: And this was against the civilian population, which really, other than the eventual presence by the Ukrainian military, initially had no way to protect themselves.
2: Absolutely. Most of the victims are civilians who took no part in the conflict and in no way uh, aided or abetted uh, Ukrainian armed forces. So they were just civilians happened to be there. Yeah.
0: I have to ask you this. How do you, how do you manage your emotions? How do you control your emotions, if it's possible, given what you see and what you experience?
2: That's a very good question. I mean, uh, every personality in our team uh, deals uh, with uh, the emotions in its own, uh, his or her own way. Uh, so there are either um, some kind of um, pauses between the sessions, pauses between the field missions, uh, during which you have to recover emotionally and psychologically, uh, or you can have the help of um, qualified professional who can uh, really go with you through the uh, interviews and events and uh, crime scenes that you witnessed. Um, So that's another way of coping um, there are also some other strategies, uh, one of which can be uh, that you try to, uh, may- maybe after having a field mission, go uh, somewhere up to the conference or whatever to just uh, decompress and have a space for yourself to deal with uh, all those uh, emotions that you uh, experienced, that you received from the uh, interview in the victim or witness. Yeah. So yeah, def- different uh, coping strategies.
0: Yeah. I want to just remind our listeners. So September 23, a UN-mandated investigation found that war crimes have been committed by the Russians, again, including rape, torture, murder, confinement of children, and sexual violence to individuals between four years of age and 82 years of age in Russian-occupied areas of Ukraine. Dmitry Koval, international law expert, truth hounds, war crimes investigators, In Ukraine, Mr. Koval is sharing with us what he and his organization have discovered as far as where the Russians have been in Ukraine and what they've done. Not only in Ukraine, but also in Georgia and Chechnya and Syria, where they used chemical weapons. And somehow they just never appear before an international tribunal. Dmitro, do you expect Russian soldiers, um, officials who stand accused of war crimes, and you've, uh, your organization has um, issued reports, three extensive submissions to the international court. Do you expect that they will ever have a day in court, or is there going to be some sort of r- agreement that, yeah, we'll have peace talks as long as none of, our, none of our people are ever charged with war crimes? What are your concerns there?
2: First of all, uh, no international court will accept this idea that peace talks somehow influence their jurisdiction in uh, with regard to international crimes. Uh, peace talks never, ever really... Um, uh, created the situation that uh, that uh, prevented international uh, adjudication to uh, judiciary authorities to act and to um, investigate cases uh, for instance we can uh, recollect um, uh, recall uh, sierra leone here uh, and the lome agreement never prevented sierra leone special court to investigate the crimes committed during the uh, war in sierra leone and there might be other examples uh, of similar nature. So um, I don't think, and I'm actually pretty sure, that peace talks will not um, create the vacuum in uh, accountability efforts. Um, As for uh, whether Russian soldiers will uh, stand uh, in front of the court and uh, actually held accountable, it's a hard question, and it uh, very much depends on whether the Russian regime will collapse or not in the um, foreseeable future if it does uh, then definitely the chances are very high that international criminal court or some other uh, international courts will be able to uh, get uh, russians into the courtroom but if not there will be trials in absentia of course not in the icc but in some um, other um, mechanisms like national courts or especially installed tribunals um, or otherwise we will see only a couple of trade tribunals uh, with Russians present. Um, for instance, those Russians who uh, are prisoners of war now, or who will be prisoners of war uh, when uh, after a while. So yeah, we'll have these chances to get Russians into the courtroom, but it's very hard to predict right now how exactly it will happen.
0: Okay, I, I should I should mention here that uh, just in the last week, the G7 justice ministers issued what's known as the Berlin declaration pledging there would be, quote, no impunity for war crimes and other atrocities, end quote, and that I'm quoting again here, criminal prosecution of core international crimes of the highest is of the highest priority to us, end quote. Those words appear in the Berlin Declaration. I hope they mean it. So the truth hounds, you've also visited, is it 70 settlements in eastern Ukraine and the Crimean Peninsula? And if that's correct, have you have you encountered the same sorts of horrific atrocities that you found in Bucha?
2: No, um, Bucha definitely stands out. Uh, we saw lots of atrocities, but most of them were committed uh, in distance. So there were shellings, uh, also torture, but not in the qu- in the quantity that we uh, saw in Bucha. So yeah, the the. Um, uh, systematic character of the atrocities after february 24th definitely beats the atrocities that occurred on ukrainian soil since 2014 to 2022
0: if our listeners uh, any of our listeners want to become involved or, or provide you with uh, with assistance or funding how do they do that is that possible
2: yes sure uh, on our site uh, there is a special button uh, uh, that uh, uh, leads to the sites to which you can donate uh, some uh, sums uh, to our organization for the cause that we are fighting.
0: So that's truthhounds.org. Dot uh, org. Yes,
2: yeah. exactly.
0: We have about a minute left. What what what's next for your organization? Do you uh, do? You, do you, well, just tell us what's next.
2: Uh, probably we are now most uh, concentrated on starting uh, criminal investigations, not only in Ukraine and uh, in the ICC, but also in foreign countries, in order to tell the story of uh, mass atrocities in Ukraine, uh, in um, uh, the communities uh, that may be less, uh, know less about uh, what is happening in Ukraine. So that's our big goal for the next um, year or So,
0: So my guest now says Alberta's most successful premiers have directly challenged federal government initiatives, and they won. And our guest points to Premier Peter Lougheed taking on the national energy program of Trudeau I, successfully launching a constitutional challenge of the natural gas export tax, and the tax was removed. Premier Lougheed also oversaw Section 92A of the Canadian Constitution, which confirms provincial jurisdiction over the development of crown lands and resources. Ted Morton is the former Alberta Finance Minister and Minister of Energy. He's a political science professor emeritus at the University of Calgary. And Professor Morton joins us. Can you guys put him on, please? Because my telephone screener here is not being cooperative. Ted, uh, your your column in the Calgary Herald uh, yesterday, Sovereignty Act shows Ottawa that Alberta will continue to fight for its rights. So there have been many, det- there are many detractors of the Sovereignty Act. You don't agree. Why?
3: Well, there were early versions of it. Uh, actually, never the act. Talk about the act back in May, June, July. That raise concerns about the rule of law and issues like that. But if you actually look at the statute that was ad- that was introduced uh, last week, it's very explicit. It has nothing to do with separation. It affirms the rule of law. Uh, it says explicitly that the Alberta government will not disobey any court decisions, won't force any Alberta individual, Alberta citizens or businesses in Alberta to do something that, that's illegal. So a lot of the speculation that was that was kind of hovering around back in early summer, mid-summer, is all addressed very specifically in this and is, uh, I think, by and large, put to rest.
0: So I'm I'm just looking at a uh, global news story here, and I just want to read you a couple of lines. Every decision that's going to be made has to first get the validation from the Assembly. This is a quote from the premier, Premier Smith. And the story goes on to say, if a resolution passes in the House identifying a federal matter deemed unconstitutional or harmful to Alberta, the bill grants cabinet powers to unilaterally rewrite provincial laws without sending them back to the legislature for debate or approval. That has That's sticking in some people's cross. And before you say, I know you're going to say something here, but I just wanted, I just want to mention this. Mr. Trudeau has a history of Uh, Making decisions that don't involve Parliament. He certainly tried in 2020 to give Bill Morneau, his then finance minister, power to tax and spend without any parliamentary oversight for two years. People seem to forget that.
3: Yeah, well, this concern with the so-called Henry VIII clause—you you don't want a king unilaterally making decisions and policy without the support and the consent of the legislature. But again, if you read the uh, if you read the Sovereignty Act closely, Section three, which is the resolution that would go to the uh, legislative assembly, the Alberta Legislature, it doesn't just identify the what. In other words. What is the violation of provincial jurisdiction or what is the harm? But the, but the resolution also then says what needs to be done. So then that moves then over to the cabinet and a cabinet minister. And whatever the cabinet or the government does has to conform with the resolution. If it doesn't, that can be challenged in court. Uh, and, and by and large, I think it will be in the interest of uh, the government and certainly the premier to make sure that what they do is consistent with what the resolution is. So I think the critics are, are partly right on this in theory, but in practice wrong. But in reality, we'll have to wait and see. Specific instances to see whether or not that problem actually develops.
0: Yeah, and that's really critical, isn't it? Wait and see. You can't assume that the government of Alberta is going to object to and and, and refuse to accept all of the each and every piece of legislation or each and every decree that comes down from Ottawa. This is going to be a selective process.
3: Well, Roy, you, know, you you've known me for a long time. Yeah. I'm I'm uh, I'm in my early seventies now. Uh, I became involved with what I'd call the Western Small R Reform Movement back uh, in the early 90s. I spent 25 years, first with the Reform Party, the Senate elections, then in the legislature, in lots of what I've written, uh, Senate elections. We got Stephen Harper elected as prime minister uh, for nine years. But after all of that, that's that's my generation, the baby boom generation in Alberta. We worked hard for 30 years. And after all of that, we saw in 2015, we're just as vulnerable, maybe more vulnerable, to the same kind of policies that uh, Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, brought in back in 1980, the national energy policy, we're just as vulnerable now as, as we were 30 years ago, 40 years ago. So it's time for a new plan. Uh, what we, I hate to say it, uh, but what my generation did and tried to do with reforms to the Senate and so forth didn't work. Uh, I think the Sovereignty Act recognizes that and says if we can't change Ottawa, Alberta has to, Alberta has to be like Quebec. It has to take more control of its own policy areas. And that's the Sovereignty Act is the first step in that direction.
0: Yeah, and that's certainly what I heard from Premier Moe of Saskatchewan on this program not so long ago. Uh, his initial statement was that uh, he expected or he would expect for Saskatchewan the same kinds of rights that uh, Quebec had within within Confederation. And, of course, Saskatchewan's now introduced the Saskatchewan First Act. The Premier introduced that Uh, Some some weeks ago, and talked to us about that. Now, and we're we're from the same generation, Ted. So, when when you when you look at um, when you look at, for example, the uh, the carbon tax, and I and I I think this is what certainly what I'm seeing from listeners in Alberta who are siding with the Sovereignty Act. What what they're saying is, look, here's the carbon tax that was foisted on us, and and we challenged it in court, and the Alberta Court of Appeal sided with the province. But then, of course, it goes on to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the Supreme Court of Canada sides with the federal government. And what I see time and again—tell me if you agree or disagree, Ted—is that the Supreme Court of Canada has a—it's uh, almost preconditioned, uh, or whatever that word is, to to, to support or—yeah, to
3: support the federal positions. Fair comment or not? Well, uh, uh, yes, uh, I've actually, in my academic work, focused mostly on the Supreme Court and constitutional law, charter of rights, division of powers issues, and I've been very critical of the Supreme Court. I think uh, because of the uh, appointment process there, Quebec's guaranteed three judges, Ontario's guaranteed three, nobody else has any guarantees, um, Quebec actually even participates in choosing the judges that come from Quebec now, no other province has that, and so... Their interest uh, is the interest of Ottawa, the federal government, and by and large, the Liberal Party, and things like provincial rights and federalism, I think, are, as I wrote, viewed more as obstacles to be overcome and not priorities to be protected. And for Scott Moe and uh, Danielle Smith, and I think for a growing number of Albertans, you know, sovereignty says federal government has these set of powers, the provinces have these sets of powers, and they're not, they can't invade one another's jurisdiction, but that. And in theory, the Supreme Court is supposed to be the umpire, the neutral umpire when there are disputes. But uh, I think if you ask Peter Lougheed <laughs> or almost any other uh, Alberta Premier of the last 30 or 40 years, they wouldn't have too much confidence in the Supreme Court as that neutral arbiter.
0: So, Ted, uh, your position would be that the Sovereignty
3: Act is the right fight at the right time for Alberta. For Alberta, for sure. I mean, the. Uh, the Alberta suffered and, and, and I don't mean the province. I mean, the people of Alberta suffered a huge recession from 2015 to 2020. There was hundred billion dollars of investment that left this province. Uh, foreign, foreign investment left altogether. Companies collapsed. People lost jobs. When people lose, lose jobs, bad things happen in the community at home. There was lots of suffering, human suffering in this province for five years. Now, with the comeback that started in the last 18 months, investments coming back, things are starting again. And I think there's a real, and, and people want that, but there's a realization, and everywhere except it seems Ottawa, that what happened in Ukraine and the Russia on February 24th has changed things. In, after February 24th, energy security and food security are now the two biggest priorities of the free world, and frankly, much of the rest of the world as well. Because of the vulnerability, we see the vulnerability of Western Europe, and particular well, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, and especially Germany. And Canada is better positioned, well, maybe along with Australia, at better positioned to address these issues of energy security and food security uh, in the coming decades. Of any of this, could be the beginning of uh, some real—not something that's just good for Alberta and Western and, West, and Saskatchewan and Western Canada, but for the entire country. But somehow, that message has still not gotten through to the Trudeau inner circle. And I think you're going to see a debate, not just between Western premiers and and Justin Trudeau, but also from Pierre Poilievre, and he's going to be talking to people in Ontario and in Quebec, that this is an opportunity for all Canadians. Climate change is important, but people are realizing it's going to take a lot longer and be a lot more expensive, the so-called transition, than Justin Trudeau has told Canadians. And in the interim, energy security food security, global priorities, Canada, very well positioned to be do very well in the next decade or two.
0: Alberta sovereignty within the United Canada Act and uh, an assessment. Joining us this time is Professor Dwayne Bratt, political science professor at Mount Royal University in Calgary. And I think you're going to find that Professor Bratt's view of the act is different to that of Professor Ted Morton, who was just on with us. Dwayne, thank you very much uh, for joining us. What's your view of of the act overall?
4: I think it's problematic in, in two respects. Um, one is to have the provincial legislature unilaterally determine what is constitutional it is, what is not. Typically, when we have constitutional jurisdictional battles between the feds and, and the provinces, which is quite common in this country, the courts are the arbitrator. In this case, they're saying, well, we will usurp the role of the courts. Uh, We will determine what's constitutional. In addition, there's another clause in there which says, or if the policy, uh, in our view, harms Albertans. So in other words, it could be something that is in federal jurisdiction, but that the Alberta government simply doesn't like because we don't know what harm means so that they will uh, decide to nullify those laws. And by nullify, it means giving a direction not to individuals, not to private companies, but to any provincial entity. That could be a municipality, that could be a school, that could be a health authority, it could be a post-secondary institution, it could be a police service, not to follow that federal law or federal uh, legislation, regulation. So that's one basket. The second basket, and already we're seeing a bit of backtracking on this from the Smith government, was it was going to give sweeping powers to the provincial cabinet um, to amend legislation without going through the legislative assembly, Um, almost emergency-type powers. And thankfully, over the last couple days, Premier Smith has suggested that that may need to be clawed back. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also reduced the amount of time for judicial review from six months down to to thirty days. so I think it was if enacted the way it was currently written before any amendments, I think it would have rode democracy in Alberta so
0: the premier also said and correct me if i 'm wrong um, said that the courts would retain the uh, the primacy, as far as making decisions is are concerned, yes.
4: Yeah, she would. She would uh, recognize uh, the authority of the Supreme Court of Canada. Mm-hmm.
0: But you know what, Dwayne, it's not the first time. I mean, let's go to the objections that you, that you raised. It's not the first time that a government in this country would take decisions based on only its own decision-making and not involve the legislature. I mean, I look back to the federal government in 2020 when Mr. Trudeau was prepared to give Mr. Morneau, his federal finance minister, just carte blanche to tax and spend without any parliamentary oversight for two years.
4: Uh, absolutely. And there was huge blowback at that time. And rightly too. so. It, uh, rightly so. And that's and why he didn't do it. That Mm-hmm. and they pulled that back and that was in the context of the early stages of the the pandemic in an emergency type situation and so yeah but one of the critics of the overreach of uh the trudeau government was daniel smith and yet they're they were prepared to do the same thing so i agree with you or i think in both of those cases it was it was wrong
0: yeah they also did it with the c21 We'll enact this now, in order in council, and then we'll debate it in Parliament later. That's not the preferred sequence. But what's your sense of, how's this going to play with the people of Alberta?
4: Well, we'll that we're going to have to wait and see, because what Smith campaigned on in the summer on the Sovereignty Act, I think was a recognition of some of the harmful policies of the Trudeau government. Um, the the um, carbon tax, it's unpopular here. The uh, legislation around environmental assessment, the legislation around pipelines, those have been unpopular here, and those have been challenged. Uh, the Kenny government lost the carbon tax case, but won the impact assessment case, the Bill C-69 case, at least at the Alberta Court of Appeal, that's now going to the Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, they also won so the carbon tax of the Alberta Court of Appeal.
4: Yeah. Uh, there is a sense... Um, in this province, uh, that while Trudeau is deeply unpopular, his policies are unpopular. Uh, polling shows that Canada, uh, that Alberta feels that it does not have the right place in uh, Confederation. We saw it in the equalization referendum that occurred last year, and so Smith is responding to all this, saying the tools that the Kennedy government used court challenges, writing letters, creating agencies, using the bully pulpit were insufficient, and she needed to go one step further. Now, by acknowledging that she'll accept the Supreme Court ruling, she's saying, why should we have to take the feds to court? Let the feds take us to court, and that will allow us to ignore federal laws for two years, three years, however long it takes to go through that very long legal process.
0: Dwayne, Dwayne, I have about 45 seconds. I just want your thoughts on this. So you have Premier Smith, and you've got Premier Moe
4: next door, yep. with essentially the same attitude toward the federal government. same attitude, very different legislation. Uh, the Saskatchewan legislation uh, was very fiery rhetoric, but when you read it, it was simply reaffirming what's in the Constitution. They are that the not provinces have primacy Smith
0: over natural proposing. resources.
4: Yeah, exactly, but they're not doing what Smith is proposing, which would have had the Saskatchewan uh, Legislative Assembly uh, vote to determine what is constitutional and what is not which is why the Saskatchewan First Act passed with bipartisan support by the opposition and by the government and why Bill 1, the Sovereignty Act in Alberta, yeah. will not pass with bipartisan
0: Nothing's going to pass with bipartisan support six months from an election. You know that. <laughs> hey, Brian? I'm just being... Oh, uh, but not... <laughs> it's
4: isn't Saskatchewan.
0: <laughs> I know, I know. But it's not, they don't have an election in six months' time. No political party is going to agree... With, huh? yeah. They're not going to agree with each other just six months down the road